Uh, well, I'm going to read uh, the sermon text today, and then Dan's going to come and preach. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 7. Uh, we're we're going to be reading verses 1 down through verse 23. And as I read this morning, uh, how about this? How about you guys stand with me, and I'm going to read this text as we stand together, just in honor of God's Word. So Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. When he had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man placed under authority. Having soldiers under my command, I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was also with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't weep. Then he came up, touched the open coffin, and the pallbearers stopped. And he said, young man, I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. Then John's disciples told him about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord, asking, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. He replied, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Thank you for standing and be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Man, I'm excited to be here. Uh, Josh asked probably around April sometime if I would fill in the preaching calendar, and there were a couple dates in June and one in August, and I, I did not want to preach to a camera, so I was like, I'll take that August date. Uh, and by Ju July or so, I had pretty much given up all hope of being able to preach to a live audience. Uh, but then a couple of weeks ago, God smiled on me, and here we are. Uh, so I'm very happy to be here with you. Have you ever met somebody or talked to somebody 
and you didn't really know who you were talking to. Maybe you found out later they were kind of a big deal. I have a friend Osa at work. He's our campus monitor, and he coached our girls' basketball team last year. And he was quite a basketball player back in the day, so he's got some connections. And one of those uh, is Travis Outlaw, some of you may know as a longtime Portland Trailblazer and NBA player. And so he asked Travis if he would come and help coach our middle school girls' basketball team, which he agreed to. So Osa was excited to show off his NBA friend. And he called our vice principal in to the gym one day after school and said, you got to meet my friend Travis. So Larry, too, our awesome vice principal, goes in there and, you know, they exchange some pleasantries and he thanks them for helping coach and then leaves and goes back to work. Well, Larry's son, Nathan, too, is like the biggest Blazer fan ever. He also works in our building, like season tickets, the whole nine yards. But he has already gone that day. So he, you can imagine the horror when he shows up the next day and finds out his dad met Travis Outlaw and didn't even know it. Uh, he wasn't happy to hear that, that he missed out on this awesome opportunity. Well, as Josh just read, we're looking at three stories in Luke chapter seven this morning. The first one focusing on the authority of Jesus as well as the faith of an outsider. The second shows the compassion of Jesus. And the third, really all three stories also focusing on the identity of Jesus. And just like my vice principal didn't know who he was talking to, John the Baptist and his disciples are trying to figure out who exactly is this Jesus guy. And these stories are gonna lead us to see that Jesus is the compassionate savior, the promised Messiah, and that those who trust in him are blessed. Uh, before I go through our first story, let me pray for our time together here. Father, as we come to your word, uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and the strength to respond. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let me read this first story again, Luke 7, 1 through 10. It says, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and when he, stood not far, or when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, or I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So verse one transitions us out of the Sermon on the Plain and back into the story. So Luke sets up his gospel with narrative storyline and then a break for some teaching, then back to the story, then teaching and so on and so forth. So we're moving out of the Sermon on the Plain back into the storyline, and it tells us that Jesus entered Capernaum. And if you remember, we were in Capernaum not too long ago in Luke chapter four. And in that uh, setting, Jesus shows up in the synagogue and he's teaching, and it says that the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching because his word possessed 
authority. That's something that we're going to want to remember. Then we get introduced to this centurion. Uh, a centurion is a commander in the Roman army. Um, at least at the beginning, he was a commander of 100 men, hence the name centurion. Cent meaning 100. Century. I'm going to go into math teacher mode. I have to teach my students this. <laughs> one cent is one out of 100. Uh, I'll put the math teacher away. But the centurion has this servant or slave, technically, who is very valuable to him. And it says that he's near death, and we don't have any information from Luke. Matthew tells a story as well. There's a little bit more information there. Uh, Matthew tells us that this guy was paralyzed, but we don't know what happened. All we know is the centurion cares very much for him and wants to see him saved. So he goes to the Jewish elders and asks if they would go approach Jesus, since Jesus is a Jew. Normally, Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. Jews, in fact, considered themselves to be unclean if they would go to the house of a Gentile. So the fact that he would even ask the Jews shows that there's a pretty special relationship here. So these Jewish elders are even eager to go and go to Jesus and say, you should help this guy. They say, he's worthy, Jesus. He's worthy for you to help him. He loves our people. He loves our nation. He built us our synagogue. And so they convince Jesus to go. And it doesn't seem like Jesus needs much convincing. On the way, they go to the centurion's house. Jesus doesn't seem to care if that will make him unclean or not. Um, he wants to go do this work for this guy. And there's a ton of parallels between this story and Acts chapter 10. If you remember in Acts chapter 10, we have Peter, the very Jewish Peter. He's having a dream about these animals coming down on a sheet, and the Lord is telling him, like, go ahead and kill and eat these animals. And he's like, no way, those are unclean. Um, and, he, and when he wakes up, he realizes that God was telling him that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. The Gentiles are not unclean. And when he wakes up, he ends up going to Cornelius' house, who happens to be a centurion as well, and he shares the good news of Jesus with them, and Cornelius and his whole family uh, have faith in the gospel and become believers. So G Jesus doesn't seem to be mind being made unclean in this way. Off to the centurion's house they go, um, but as he's getting close to the centurion's house, some more men come out, this time the centurion's friends, and they have a message from the centurion saying, you actually don't even need to come under my roof. He says, in direct opposition to what the Jews just said, he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. This guy is humble, and he seems to get it. Uh, who is worthy of God's grace? Who is worthy of God's presence? The centurion knows that it's not him. So he tells Jesus, all you have to do is say the word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. This guy has amazing faith. And he even gives a little illustration for us. He says, look, Jesus, I get how authority works. I'm under people's authority, and I've got a bunch of people under my authority. So when I tell them what to do, they do it, which is why you can just say the word. But if you think about what he's insinuating here, it's really amazing. He is saying, like, Jesus, crumpled spinal cords are under your authority. Diseased people are under your authority. People about to die. All you have to do is say a word and that crumpled spine will obey and be restored. 
Like, wow, this, guy, this guy's faith kind of makes you look at yourself a little bit. He makes us question, how do we come to Jesus? How do we respond to him? And what's next, what happens next is really like the key part of the story. Jesus has an emotional response to this guy's faith. I mean, he looks around at the crowd following and says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. We're told that he marvels or he's amazed. He is stunned at the faith of the centurion. And that's crazy because Jesus doesn't marvel at other people. People marvel at Jesus, not the other way around. In fact, there's only one other time in the entire Bible where we are told that Jesus marvels at others. And that happens in Mark chapter six, when Jesus is in his hometown, he's teaching and doing these amazing works, and the people stop and go, wait a second, isn't that Mary and Joseph's kid? And we're told that they took offense at him. And in response, Jesus marvels at their unbelief. So those are the two times Jesus marvels. Once at the unbelief of his people, and once at the amazing belief of this outsider. Usually people are amazed at Jesus, not the other way around. And if you remember the last time he was in Capernaum, they were amazed at Jesus because his word possessed authority. The centurion seems to get that. Just say the word, Jesus. How do we approach Jesus? Do we trust that he's working out his plan? Do we have confidence that he has authority over all the things in our life? It took an outsider, a non-Israelite, to make Jesus marvel. And this humble centurion is our example. And then, of course, Luke wraps up the story by letting us know that when they get back to the house, the servant was healed. The proof is in the pudding. Jesus apparently said the word. We're not told what he said, but the centurion's slave is healed. Next, Jesus moves into this small town, and he's, a whole crowd is following him there. Uh, this story is told in verses 11 to 17. So soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So Jesus shows up in this little town of Nain with a great big crowd following him. And when they get there, there's another great crowd. And they're gathered for a funeral. And he gives us some important details here. The funeral is for uh, this young man. Well, we don't know how old he is, but he's the only son of a woman. They're carrying him out on a bier, which is like a big wooden plank, where they're carrying him out to his final place of burial. We're also told that he's not only the only son of this woman, but she's a widow. So this means this poor woman had no one left. She had relationally no one left in her family, and now she lacks anyone to provide for her as well. So she's in a very precarious situation. She's likely now gonna be forced to beg for 
her very survival. But verse 13 shows us the heart of Jesus. First, we're told that he saw her. Two crowds are piling in, and Jesus' eye is drawn to the suffering widow. He saw her. And it's no different with us. Jesus sees us in our suffering. You might feel alone, but that's not reality. In fact, to the degree that you feel alone in your suffering, you're believing the lie that Jesus is not walking with you through it. This text is showing us who Jesus is, and his eyes are drawn to the sufferer. But he doesn't just see us in our suffering. He didn't just see the widow. His heart filled with compassion. That's who Jesus is in his very nature. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up so that he can begin to work in your life. Jesus works in the lives of the messy. And the messier the life, the more amazing the work he does. Jesus came not to heal the healthy, but the sick. And in contrast to our last story, lest we think that we have to have some amazing faith like the centurion for Jesus to do a work, there's no request made. Nobody asks Jesus to do anything. There's no mention of any sort of faith. In fact, no one even speaks in this story until after Jesus is done doing his work. It's just the compassion of Jesus that drives him. So he sees the widow, he has compassion on her, and he approaches her, and he tells her not to cry. Then he walks over to the dead body, laying on this board, and he comes and he sticks his hand on it. Now, Jews thought it was unclean to be around Gentiles, but there's nothing in the scriptures saying that. But it definitely made you unclean to go and touch a dead body or to touch things that had touched a dead body. But again, Jesus doesn't seem to care about being made unclean. And when he walks up and he touches the beer, the bearers stop. They realize something is going on here. And now all eyes are on Jesus and he speaks. Young man, I say to you, arise. As the centurion knew, all it takes is a word. Arise. And what was seconds earlier, a rotting corpse sits up. This is what Jesus does with you and me also. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There is no greater truth than the fact that we worship a God who out of his great love and great compassion gives life to the dead, who says to unclean, rotting sinners, arise. Jesus, the only perfectly pure one, reaches out and touches us and takes on our defilement upon himself, the clean becoming unclean, that he might make us clean. That's the good news of Jesus. Our Savior saw us, and he had compassion on us. And even better, he still sees us and has compassion on us. He will continue to. His heart for you hasn't changed, and it will never change. If you don't know Jesus this morning, he wants you to turn to him like the centurion. Turn to him in faith. Turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus.
Or maybe this morning you're struggling with sin. And like so many of us, we're always trying to clean ourselves up like it's up to us. So maybe you haven't gone to Jesus because you want to get your acts together first. You need to know this morning that Jesus is not condemning you. In fact, he took the condemnation you deserve upon himself so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't isolate over the guilt you feel from your sin. Instead, run to the compassionate Jesus. And if you're suffering this morning and you feel alone, know that Jesus sees you. You are not alone. You are not forgotten. You can rest in the compassionate embrace of Jesus. Well, after this dead man is raised, he begins to speak. We're told that Jesus takes him and, and he gave him to his mother. This is quoted basically word for word out of First Kings 17, which we went through not very long ago, where Elijah raised the widow's son and he gave him to his mother. And we get a similar story with Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4, where he raises the son of a couple and gives, them, gives him to his parents. So we see the response of the people when this man is raised from the dead. And they're filled with fear and they give glory to God, which I would say is probably a pretty appropriate response when you see a man raised from the dead. But they're also trying to figure out just exactly who Jesus is. And so their mind is taken back to Elijah and Elisha. And so they say, a great prophet has arisen among us. And they're not wrong. Jesus is a great prophet. But they're not quite right, are they? They don't quite have the whole picture of who it is that they're looking at, who it is that they're talking to. And when they say uh, God has visited his people, they would say that in the Old Testament when a mighty work would be done among them. Well, so this focus on who Jesus is exactly is going to continue on in our next story. Uh, this is going to be in verses 18 through 23. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We can look at this last section in three parts. First, we get the question. So John the Baptist is in prison. His disciples are seeing Jesus do all these things, so they go and give a report to John. John, if you remember, had confronted Herod, and so he'd been thrown in prison. Now, Luke has been building this tension with Jesus' identity throughout his gospel, and most Jews had a picture of what the Messiah was going to be like from the Old Testament. Yes, they knew he was going to be a great prophet, but he was also their conquering king who was coming back. And he was going to overthrow all of their oppressors, and he was going to establish his eternal kingdom. And that's not exactly what Jesus is doing here. So even John the Baptist is a little bit confused. Like, man, these are amazing works I'm hearing about, but is this the guy or is this not the guy? So he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus. 
Are you the Messiah or should we be looking for somebody else? Then in verse 21, Luke drops some context in there for us. So we get the question and then we get the context. He says, in that hour, he healed many people, diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So he's letting us know, like, they're seeing all that Jesus is doing. He's reinforcing all the miracles that Jesus is doing in their midst. And so that's gonna lead us into the answer. Now imagine with me for a moment, it's the early 90s, there's a couple of guys in Lithuania who love basketball, and they keep hearing about this Michael Jordan guy. But there's no internet, they haven't seen anything, they really wanna see Michael Jordan play, they don't know anything about him other than he plays for the Chicago Bulls. So they make a trek to Chicago, and they're watching this basketball game. They don't even know which one Michael Jordan is, but they see this number 23 guy out there, and he's just unstoppable, hitting shots they can't even believe. And so they're like, man, we gotta go down and find out if that's the guy. So from the nosebleeds, they start getting down at the end of the game and trying to get down behind the, the Bulls bench, and the game's over, and this number 23 guy has got swarms of people, kids trying to get his autograph, and they muscle their way up there, and they holler at him and say, hey, are you Michael Jordan? Can you imagine the look that Michael Jordan would give them? <laughs> Didn't you just watch the game? Do you see all these people trying to get my autograph? <laughs> That's basically what Jesus does with John the Baptist's disciples here except probably with a little less snark than Michael would have given those guys. <laughs> Jesus does not respond like, oh, you guys still didn't know? Yeah, no, I'm the, I'm the Messiah that was promised. Yeah, absolutely, I'm glad you guys asked. I thought you might have figured it out by now, but no, yeah, go tell John yes. The answer is yes, uh, give John my best. No, basically, Jesus says, are you watching? Do you guys see what's going on around here? His answer is basically what Pastor Josh preached last week. You will know a tree by its fruit. Jesus then tells of what he's doing, and he quotes from Luke 4, right when Jesus began his public ministry. You remember, he walked into a synagogue, and he opened the scroll, and he reads from Isaiah 61. And then he tells the people, this is being fulfilled right now. And a couple of things mentioned in that text are that the blind are receiving sight, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And then Jesus adds to that what he's been doing. Lepers are being cleansed and the, the lame are walking and the deaf are hearing and the dead are being raised. Jesus' identity is made clear by his works. And he closes by saying, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The, the fact that Jesus' ministry doesn't look the way it was expected to look should not be a stumbling block. The people of his hometown in Mark chapter six, when Jesus marveled, were told that they took offense at him. So they're like the negative example. Don't see Jesus doing these things and take offense. The positive example would be the centurion that we just read about. He gets word about who Jesus is and he has absolute trust in Jesus. So it's stated negatively here, blessed, is the one who doesn't take offense at me. The positive version would be, blessed is the one who trusts in me. And the word blessed just means happy. Happy is the one who trusts in me or who doesn't take offense. Jesus is calling us to trust that he 
knows what he is doing. Even and perhaps especially when it doesn't make sense to us. When we don't understand the plan, will we still trust that he knows best? When your job is sucking the life out of you, when your kids aren't walking with Jesus, when you're single and you so want to be married, when you're married but your marriage is going stale, when a year like 2020 hits, when the wrong person gets elected, when the plan doesn't look the way you expected it to, will you trust the God whose plan it is? He's in control still. When instead we spend our time outraged by the latest thing on social media, we're actually robbing ourselves of joy. You will be happy when you trust Jesus. Happy is the one who does not take offense at me. The plan is not going to look the way you think it's supposed to look. But we have a God who is trustworthy. John wasn't quite sure who he was talking to. But thanks to God's word, we can have certainty about who Jesus is. He's the compassionate Savior who sees us and who raises the dead by the power of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you deal with us according to your love and compassion and not according to our sin. Help us to rest in that. Help us to trust you in times of trial. Lord, give us a strong foundation that is built on your character and on the good news of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.